Today we uh, deal with a topic that you asked for and that you actually voted as the fifth most requested topic that you would like to hear dealt with from the Bible. There, there may be no more volatile issue in our culture right now than the one we address today. This topic may seem like no big deal to you if you have no lesbian gay, bisexual, or transgender friends. Or it may not feel like a big deal to you if you've never had a child or family member say those two words, I'm gay. Or on the other hand, this may not be a big issue in your life if you've never been invited to a gay or lesbian wedding. And you wondered, what should I do? Should I go in order to show my unconditional love for this person? Or maybe should I not go lest I somehow not be representing Jesus well? And this may not seem like a really big deal to you if you don't live with same-sex attraction yourself. Wondering what will happen if people find out what it will mean to you in the church and how you'll be treated. But if one or more of those things has occurred in your life or any number of other scenarios, then you know this is indeed a big deal. Growing up in the small town of Leoma, Tennessee, I didn't know any lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people, what is often referred to as the LGBT community. You'll often see it written with another letter, the letter Q added, which normally stands for questioning, someone who's questioning uh, their sexuality. Now, of course, I did know some people, but in my little community, it wasn't uh, safe to come out for fear of what might happen. And so people who had a same-sex attraction just kind of kept it inside. I can't imagine what that must be like. And to live with the paranoia of what might happen if your sexual orientation became known. But then I moved away from Leoma and for the first time in my life had to deal with my own feelings and beliefs on this subject. And through the years of ministry now, I've gotten to know many gay and lesbian people to listen to them, to show the love of Christ. And I've discovered real people with real needs and real fears. And I've met many people with same-sex impulses or attraction who love Jesus Christ deeply and are trying to live out their discipleship as best they can. To, as Scripture says in Philippians, work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So I can assure you today, this is not a theoretical discussion. It is personal. Based on dozens of conversations, I can tell you there are committed followers of Jesus at Grace who are confused about where they should land biblically and relationally on this topic. And I can also tell you there are lots and lots of teenagers and people in their 20s who are still trying to figure out their sexuality. And there are also hundreds and hundreds of people at Grace who love God and love his word, and they want to bring grace and truth together in perfect balance when it comes to this discussion. 
So what about it? What about God? How does God feel about homosexuality and gay marriage? Well, first, I'm convinced that the same God who watched his own son mocked, beaten, humiliated, shunned, and ostracized, that God, and if you're taking notes, you might want to jot some of these things down now, that God is grieved whenever any person is mistreated, especially by professing Christians. I've got to acknowledge my own sin in this, folks. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm going to admit it. Before I knew any LGBT people or had any friends with same-sex attraction, I grew up listening to and laughing at gay jokes. And I would label effeminate men and masculine women with nasty names. I want you to know I am so, so ashamed of that. I've repented of that because I believe it grieves the heart of God. That behavior is simply not honoring to the one who taught us to love our neighbor as ourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as I look at that, I don't see any caveat on that, do you? It doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself unless, of course, they're lesbian or gay. And then you really don't have to love them. And then game off, treat them any way you want to. No, it just says, love your neighbor as yourself, period. Just do it. And I can tell you on the authority of Scripture that whenever anyone is mistreated, it grieves the heart of God. I see news reports where professing Christians go to events and hold up signs and placards and shout out the words, God hates fags. Where do people come up with this stuff? According to the Bible, God loves everybody. By the way, Christians, have you ever noticed how we tend to get very angry over people who sin differently than we do? Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of humorous, isn't it? If they sin differently than us, uh, we're bent out of shape. Love is the orientation that every follower of Jesus is called to. You say, but pastor, how can I love people who disagree with me? I'm married to someone who disagrees with me on many things. And we love each other very, very much. It ought to grieve us when any person is mistreated, mocked. Humiliated. Folks, this isn't anything deep. This is basic. This is elementary. This is Christianity 101. That ought to bother us because God loves everyone. So let's make sure, right off the bat, let's make sure that this is a church where there's no gay bashing going on, no gay jokes going around. At Grace, Let's be known for our love for all people, lest we come to the day where we actually have to put an asterisk by John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, unless you're fill in the blank. I like what Billy Graham says. He says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. And I can say with tremendous confidence that God is grieved 
over the mistreatment of anyone in the LGBT community. Now, here's a second insight that I take great comfort in personally, and that is that God alone, <clears throat> God alone understands all the complex dynamics that contribute to same-sex attraction. Now, think about it. Whether you're gay or straight, you can choose your behavior. You can't choose who you're attracted to, right? I mean, you may be attracted to people of the opposite sex, but you're not attracted to everyone of the opposite sex, are you? Right? Some you are, some you're not. You don't choose who you're attracted to, even if you're straight. So what leads to same-sex attraction? How can two brothers or two sisters who grew up in the same home with the same parents, the same values, the same bloodline, the same family environment grow up with different sexual orientations? Are people born gay? Or are there environmental or life experience factors that contribute to it? Well, some of the most intelligent people in the world, Christians and non-Christians, have been studying this for years and trying to figure it out. And there are three contributing factors that always make their way. These aren't in your notes, but if you want to jot them down, that'd be great. That always make their way into this complex discussion. In some circumstances, I think a small percentage, there may be some dysfunctional or destructive family dynamics that have played a role. Dad may have been absent or distant. He may have been raging or abusive or disapproving. Maybe mom was shaming or smothering or controlling or emotionally crippling. And perhaps that contributed to it. The problem is, of course, there are many straight people who grew up in homes with unhealthy relationships with dad or a controlling mom. And so that can't fully explain it. Another consistent contributing factor might be early sexual experiences, maybe with a family member or trusted friend. Sometimes when you get underneath the story of a person, uh, they'll tell you about a time when they were a child or a teenager and, and mom's new husband or <clears throat> an uncle or the babysitter, or an older brother, or a neighbor, or a trusted friend. Violated sexual lines they had no right to violate. And it left the person feeling wounded, and confused, and sexually in a quandary many times. Brad Jones is a church leader I really respect in our area. He serves as pastor of Christ Church Episcopal in Schenectady, a, a sister evangelical church. And it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, community there. And I share his, this testimony with his permission. When uh, Brad was a young boy, he was accosted by a stranger and sexually abused. And that abusive act, combined with early exposure to pornography, left Brad confused about his own sexual identity. 
As an older teenager and in his early 20s, he began to act, began to act out in homosexual encounters with other men. In his own words, Brad said, I was living a, a dual life, churchgoer on Sunday, homosexual sex addict in my private life, he says. When he came into a relationship with Christ and about in his mid-20s, he began to finally, for the first time, face and it was painful to do. But he began to face the impact this abusive act had actually had on shaping his own understanding sexually of who he was. And in Brad's case, he began to realize that same-sex attraction was not his natural orientation at all. Today, he's a pastor and happily married <coughs> to a wonderful woman. They're <coughs> blessed with a marvelous family. But that early abusive encounter marked his life in profound ways. A third piece of this complex puzzle has to do with the question of genetics and the role it may play. Well, scientists have studied genes and hormones and brain structures, trying to find clues. They've studied rats and humans and monkeys and fruit flies and rams. They've explored everything from fingerprint patterns uh, to birth order, trying to find some clue and some genetic link to this. And the studies are actually fascinating. And yet, scientists, Christian and non-Christian, are still debating if there is a genetic factor that makes some people more prone to same-sex attraction. It's the age-old question, are people born gay or do they become gay? The simple answer is, the jury is still out. The research is inconclusive. <coughs> Excuse me, it may be that one day there's a clear genetic link found. But I think anybody being intellectually honest on this subject at this point has to acknowledge we don't understand all the complex dynamics that lead to same-sex attraction. For that matter, we don't understand all the complex dynamics that lead to different sex attraction. But our omniscient God does. He's a little smarter than we are. And I take great comfort in knowing that God understands what we don't. The Bible says in Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power, his understanding has no limit. He understands. And these three factors, along with possibly other things that we don't even know about yet, may play contributing roles in some situations. But it's complex, it's mysterious, and I personally believe it's rather insulting to someone who's dealing with these issues to pretend that we've got it all figured out. Because I don't think we do. Now, here's another insight about God, whether it's popular or not, whether it's chic or avant-garde or not, here it is, God expects his followers to stand tenaciously on the truth and speak the truth in love. As Christ's followers, we don't get our truth from opinion polls or surveys. We don't get it from what's popular in the culture. Our truth source is always God's word. That's where we always turn. And at Grace Fellowship, I just want you to know, if you're new around here, 
My name is Rex. I'm one of the pastors around here, and I just want to tell you what we all believe. We all accept God's word as the truth for our lives. And when it comes to an issue, a moral issue, even if it's tough, even if it's hard for us to accept, we don't accommodate Scripture to our lifestyles. We accommodate our lifestyles to Scripture. Okay? So in addition to being a place that extends love to all people and believes that the mistreatment of any person, including LGBT people, is unjust and grieving to God, God's church is also a place where the truth is spoken, not in an arrogant, pompous way, but in a very kind, loving, and courageous way. So what does God say about homosexuality and gay marriage in the Bible? Well, the Bible teaches from the various, very earliest passages in Genesis that talk about human sexuality. It teaches that God designed full sexual expression to be ultimately between a man and a woman in the safety and context of a marriage relationship. And by the way, that's what we've always taught at Grace Fellowship. Now listen, any straight sexual activity outside of that ethic and any same-sex sexual activity outside of that ethic is outside of God's design and plan. For instance, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 13. It says, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. Now, that's not what many LGBT people want to hear. Can we be honest? Frankly, that's not what many of us straight people want to hear either. God set the bar incredibly high. And none of us is off the hook on that. I'm not off the hook. You're not off the hook. No, none of us, no matter what our sexual orientation, can ex escape that. This is a part of God's protective love. So here's the kind of marriage that Jesus endorses in the Bible. You can read about it in Matthew 19 and other places. Haven't you read, he replied, that in, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Seems to be pretty clear. And as you might expect, there are many people who want to explain away what the Bible says on this matter. There's a clever tool circulating out there in the culture. And this little pamphlet says on the front, so provocative when you read the title, what Jesus says about homosexuality. People look at that and go, wow, I want to find out what he says. And they open it up and it's blank. There's nothing in it, not a single word. And people want to believe that because Jesus didn't directly speak to this issue, that it must be permissible. And yet, do you know there are a lot of things Jesus didn't directly speak to? He didn't directly speak to domestic violence or incest or rape or human trafficking, and a host of other topics that we grapple with today. And yet, as we study his teachings, 
as we look at the principles of his word, we get all kinds of helpful insights that can guide us in our moral choices on those subjects. And Jesus taught that any words in the Bible are his words because it's God-breathed. And Jesus taught that not even one stroke of a pen is going to pass away. So we can't pick and choose what we want and throw out the rest. And by the way, that little pamphlet is inaccurate. It's not actually true to say Jesus said nothing on this issue. In the passage we just read from Matthew 19 and the other parallel passages in the Gospels that say the same thing, Jesus reaffirmed the one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Now, there are various places in the Bible that speak directly to homosexual behavior. They're in your notes. You can see them here on the screen. I've just put some of them there that speak to this issue. These would be the key, what I would call, the key passages that are most relevant to that. Again, you don't need to write them down because you've got them right there in your notes. I'm not going to read all those right now. We're going to look at one of them a little bit later. But I urge you, if you're curious, to go home and read what Scripture says. But can I summarize what those passages say? If you look at those passages along with all the other biblical passages, and there are a host of others that speak to human sexuality, here's what you will find. I'm going to summarize it in four statements. The only form of sexual expression approved by the Bible is sex between one man and one woman within the bonds of marriage. Second thing that you would conclude if you study all of these passages very carefully really dig into them you will conclude that sexual immorality which includes homosexual behavior is a form of sinful brokenness brought on by the fall folks something you'll hear me say over and over again today is we're all broken and I hope you know that about yourself we've been broken by the fall into sin. It plunged our hearts, yours and mine, into darkness. And it's affected us in all kinds of ways. For instance, did you know that there are some people, we know this from brain science, that are hardwired to be more quick to have outbursts of temper and to have tantrums? What I mean is, the fuse is shorter for some individuals, not because they've willingly chosen that, but rather because of the pattern in which the neurons in the human brain are actually firing. But even though they're predisposed that way genetically, we still say, look, you need to put a lid on that. You need to curb that behavior. You need to control those impulses so they don't dominate the core of your life. We know that in this broken and disordered world, there are certain conditions that predispose people to alcoholism, for instance, and to other addictive behaviors. There are also, thankfully, certain genetic factors that predispose a person toward being more happy and contented. I sat a few years ago with a dear woman whose daughter was in a lesbian relationship, and her son was gay. And she asked me, wonderful woman, I really enjoyed the conversation. We had a two-hour conversation. She said, can you explain to me why both of my children are homosexuals? 
Don't you think it has to be genetic? And then she asked, if it's discovered someday that there's a clear genetic link to homosexuality, won't that change how we treat the Bible? What if they discovered a homosexual gene, she asked. And I said, well, let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's suppose that one day they discovered an adultery gene. It's crystal clear. It is unmistakable. And in all their studies, it's demonstrated clearly that virtually everyone who engages in adulterous behavior has this gene, this adultery gene. And then I said, now, in your mind, would that excuse adultery? She thought for a moment and she said, well, I suppose we could still choose, couldn't we? I said, I believe so. So whatever genetic propensities one may have, things that have been brought on by the fall, if that individual is a Christ follower, we still have to come to grips with the biblical ethic. Are we going to obey it or not? Third, we can conclude from these passages, we're coming up with conclusions now, if you study all the biblical passages, third, the Bible has nothing good to say about sexual immorality. Now, some of you have been Christians for decades, You're, you want to go, duh, right now. But see, I can't assume everybody knows this. My belief is that probably over 90% of the people listening to me right now have never read the Bible all the way through. So we need to say things like this that may seem crystal clear. It has nothing good to say about it. What I'm saying to you is there's no situation in the Bible outside of the marriage bond between a man and a woman where God looks at any form of sexual relationship and goes, I'll tell you what, that's beautiful. Wow, that is good. I'm going to bless that. Not once. Not one good word to say about. And finally, the Bible is totally consistent in its condemnation of homosexual behavior. Now, please notice, I didn't say homosexual desire. I want to make a clear distinction between the two. Some of us have illegitimate heterosexual desire. Some have homosexual desire. These may be temptations. But as a Jesus follower, we're not to act on those. Let's be crystal clear that temptation is not a sin. The behavior is. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. If you honestly are saying that the temptation is a sin, then you're claiming Jesus sinned, which he clearly did not. The temptation is not the sin. The Bible never wavers on. There's not one, not even one, where the Bible says that sexual immorality, including homosexual behavior, should be commended. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, I would imagine you would say that because you're biased. You're a Christian. You're a Christian pastor. Of course, that colors the way you read Scripture. Okay, well, let's go down that road a little bit. This isn't just me talking. Listen to what Pim Pronk says. He is a gay Dutch scholar looking at the totality of Scripture, bringing all of his intelligent sophistication to the text, using every tool he has, and he concludes this. In this case, the evidence is lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. 
Rejection is a foregone conclusion. Or how about Dan Via? I could recommend a couple of books to you by Dan Via. I don't agree with his position. He is a revisionist scholar who believes that Christianity and homosexuality are compatible. And yet, he, I respect this, he has intellectual integrity. And Dan Via says the biblical texts that deal with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. Or how about another scholar that I first studied and read some of his books when I was back in seminary, and uh, he still teaches today. His name is Luke Timothy Johnson. Back then, he was teaching at SMU, Southern Methodist University. Today, he's a professor at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. He is pro-gay. He himself is gay. He looks at Scripture with his immense knowledge of the Greek text and the Hebrew text, and he concludes, the task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says. Through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties, the exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. So he's just frustrated with anybody who would claim it doesn't condemn homosexual behavior consistently. One more quote. Bernadette Bruton. She's a lesbian scholar who looks at what Paul says in Romans, an outstanding teacher of Greek, really, really knowledgeable in biblical languages and so on. She looks at his analysis where he says that people exchange the truth of God for a lie and so on. And here's what she concludes. I believe that Paul used the word exchanged to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. This woman is a lesbian herself, has the scholarly integrity to say, come on, Scripture is crystal clear on this matter. Now, another protest that's raised today has become popular in our culture to say that, well, Paul and the other biblical writers, they didn't know the kind of homosexuality we have today. They, they, they were only talking about abuse. They didn't know anything about a committed, loving, kind, stable relationship between two people, consensual homosexuality. And certainly if Paul had even known about that, he would have had no problem with that whatsoever. That's a common argument that's used. N.T. Wright is an, a world-respected scholar. He's what you would call a classicist. That is, his expertise is Plato and Aristotle, the other classic writers of antiquity. So here's a guy who's an expert on the culture around the time of Jesus. And in responding to this whole notion that Paul and the other biblical writers just didn't know about a loving, committed homosexual relationship, he says the following. When I read accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, they had a great they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato, he writes. 
the idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that, he says parenthetically, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. So what's he saying? The biblical writers were fully aware of loving, committed homosexual relationships, and yet they still condemned it. So what am I saying through all that? Why did I go through all those quotes? Why did I spend so much time on that? Because I want you to understand the bottom line. The Bible is totally consistent. There is not one instance, either Old or New Testament, where homosexual behavior is spoken of positively. Everywhere it's mentioned, it's understood to be sin, and the church has never wavered on that for 2,000 years. Now, before we leave this point and move on to the last and final point, I just want to look at one of those passages, which I think is one of the most helpful ones, that talks about homosexual behavior. And as I read this from the screen, I want you to be thinking about how many times you appear on that list, and I'll be thinking about how many times I appear on this list. Okay, let's look at it together. Paul writes, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do you, how many times do you appear on there? I'm wondering, do we have any wrongdoers in the house today? I'm just, just wondering. In fact, if you've never, ever done wrong, Jesus, I'd like for you to raise your hand out there because we'd like to acknowledge you in our midst today. We'd like to see where you're sitting, Lord. Okay, I wonder if we've got anybody here, just thinking out loud is all I'm doing, that's ever been sexually immoral. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, Maybe send a naked picture of yourself to someone you're not married to, or, oh, surely not in a church like Grace, but maybe had sex with someone that you're not married to. Maybe. Or how about, how about slanderers? We got any slanderers here? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Anybody ever been to a women's Bible study, you know? You know, you know the prayer time can become very interesting at that. You know what I'm saying? Folks, I'm on this list. And I think if you're honest, you're on this list. But where do some Christians get off saying that homosexuality is the sin? It's not the sin. It is a sin, along with all these others. And this says that people like me, by the way, I'm not going to tell you where I am on there, (laughs) but I'm on there. People like me don't deserve the kingdom of God. Wow. We're all broken. So the point is, there's no room for anyone listening to me right now to have a holier-than-thou or a better-than-you kind of attitude. My sin separates me from God just as much as anybody else's does. We all stand under the judgment of God, and we all need his amazing grace. But the final point I would want to declare today is this. This is good news, by the way. 
good news for everyone. God is extending grace and truth to all of us this day. And the emphasis here is all of us. Straight people, gay people, idolaters, liars, swindlers, the greedy, all of us. There is no them and us here. If any one of us think that LGBT people are worse sinners than the rest of us, it's simply an indication you are clueless. And you don't understand the depths of your own sinfulness. So let's look at the passage one more time. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at the next verse. Here's the hope. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. Is that good news or what? God is still in the business of transforming lives of broken people like Rex Keener and doing for them what they could never do for themselves. He changes us from the inside out. So as we move down home stretch here, let's ask the question, can persons with same-sex orientation change that orientation? It depends on who you ask. The famed sex therapist of a generation ago, you've heard of them, Masters and Johnson. They did a bazillion different studies on things like this. They, in one of their books, note a 43% success rate in terms of change of actual sexual orientation on this issue. And that's out without the reliance on any higher power of any kind, by the way. Or I would recommend to you a wonderful book by Jones and Yarhouse, a book called X Gaze, where they did a longitudinal study over a period of several years and demonstrated, as a matter of fact, that there are individuals whose actual orientation at times can change. And certainly we know as Jesus followers that with God all things are possible. His power to transform is amazing. Now, the American Psychological Association disagrees. The APA has been very vehement in taking the stand that change is impossible In fact, any attempts at change are unethical. That is the official stance of the American Psychological Association. As a preacher now for 40 years, throughout these years, I've known dozens of people and had innumerable conversations with people who are committed Christ followers who would self-identify as gay, meaning... They have a same-sex orientation. They're trusting in Christ's atoning death on the cross to save them and transform them. They know they have a choice over their behaviors. And if God were to miraculously change their orientation someday, or even if their orientation never changes, they've made the tough and courageous choice to live sexually pure, that is, a celibate life. And I know we have people in our church who've made that decision. And oh, I respect you. I hold those of you who've made that choice in such high regard. 
And there are many people who have gone from a homosexual lifestyle to being happily married in a heterosexual relationship. I mentioned Pastor Brad Jones earlier as just one example of that. Another prominent example would be Rosaria Butterfield. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, it's a great book. She shares her gripping story. She was the tenured professor, a committed lesbian, and leader of the LGBT activities at Syracuse University. She's a dynamic speaker, frequently spoke on this issue. And today, she's a committed Christian, happily married wife and mom. Are you saying, Pastor, she never has a same-sex impulse? I don't know. But they've become much less intense and powerful, according to her. So the point is that in Christ, change is possible. Now, to be fair, we need to also acknowledge that there are also gay individuals who seek to change and find it almost impossible to change. A helpful book along these lines is by Wesley Hill. He's a faithful Christian, a professor at the Anglican School out in Pennsylvania called Trinity School of Ministry. The title of the book is awesome. It's called Washed and waiting. And Wesley describes his own journey of realizing somewhere around the late adolescent years that he felt drawn toward persons of the same gender. He finally began to seek counsel on this when he was at Wheaton College. He's gone through all kinds of therapy, deliverance sessions. He's been prayed over innumerable times. He's gone through counseling, and he himself has come to the conclusion that Change seems impossible until the day of the eschaton, until he receives his final transformation in the presence of God. That's his conclusion. And so Wesley has recognized in all of this a call to celibacy. But in his book, Washed in Waiting, he chides the church as an insider for not understanding this issue and not really walking alongside of people who are struggling to maintain celibacy. And I, I really respect Wesley Hill. I believe his critique is valid. By the way, we don't do a real good job helping heterosexual people live with purity either. One of the biggest reasons that people with same-sex attraction often leave the church and drift back into the lifestyle is they found a lack of kindness, a lack of understanding, and a lack of compassion. What a shame. So what if, and this is my final challenge as I close, what if, as a church, we brought grace and truth together in perfect balance? What if, what if, instead of beating people over the head with Bible verses, we actually ask them, tell me what it's like to be you? And then we genuinely listened with empathy and care to their stories. Folks, our first responsibility is always to listen, to really listen to their story, to have a conversation. That's how we begin to love them. We need to let people know that just as you are, just as you are, you matter to God. We need to let them know that there's a blood-stained cross in history where God's only son died for you. And you don't get your act together and then come to God. You come to God just as you are. And that means a real church, a genuine church, is always going to be a little messy because we're all coming to God just as we are. Grace Fellowship is a place where broken, 
wrecked sinners like Rex Keener and like you are welcome. We're not judging anybody based on your temptations, your impulses, your tendencies, or your urges. We come to God with our messy lives, and we all meet together at the foot of the cross because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? And I'll tell you one thing. At the foot of the cross, you don't find gay people and straight people and lesbians and transgender people. You find one kind of people at the foot of the cross, broken. Broken people. Broken over their sin, whatever it is. And that's where we all find God's amazing grace. So we've all got different hurdles, but let's come together and let's all challenge each other to live the biblical ethic. It's only by the power of God's spirit we can do that. Will we stumble and fall? Sure, but we'll pick each other up and we'll say, come on, we've got a long way to go to the celestial city. Let's do this thing together. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of and may God make us that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and truth that flow from your word. Help us to bring them together in perfect balance. Help us to love people, whatever their specific moral challenge may be, knowing, knowing that we've got our own and knowing that your grace alone is sufficient to sustain us. May we be a place where the orientation is love. In Jesus' name, amen. Will the ushers please? Yes. Will the ushers please come forward as we receive our tithes and our offerings? I also want to invite any of you who would like prayer at the end of the service to come to the prayer corner where the prayer team will be more than happy to, to talk with you, spend time with you, and pray with you and, and for you.